Now, uh, at some point uh, this evening, I think uh, I'm going to be using the, the whiteboard, which means if you're sitting at that kind of angle, you're not going to be able to see it, and it'll be absolutely no use to you whatsoever. But, but um, I'm, just, I'm just letting you know that at some point, I, might, I just might be using the whiteboard. Um, we've had a number of questions, maybe not as many as we've had in the past, but we've had some, uh, some big questions, questions that can't be answered in uh, a yes or a no or, or a sentence or two. And uh, some of these questions might take us a little while to unravel. Uh, not all of these questions are directly related to uh, the topics that we've been covering in this semester, uh, which is not unusual for these Q&A um, sessions. The first one, uh, first one is this, and let me, let me read the question to you. Uh, do, do we know, or is it our business to know, of the salvation status of those who were blameless in never hearing the gospel. And then in parenthesis, infants, American Indians, pre-1492, etc. Is there some chance they're like Emeth, E-M-E-T-H, Emeth in uh, C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. Now, the reference goes to C.S. Lewis and The Last Battle, so it gives the game away as to who asked this question, but I won't identify the person. It's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, uh, apart from the reference to C.S. Lewis, th this is a question about can those who have never heard the gospel be saved? And is it our is it our business? Can we ever, can we ever know? Can we, can we have an answer to that question? Is there an answer to that question? Is there a biblical answer to that question? Actually, there are seven or eight answers to that question if church history and even, even current opinion is concerned. There are, there are somewhere around seven, eight, some would say nine different answers that you can give to that question. But let's, let's, uh, Let's think about C.S. Lewis for a second, why, why this reference to Emmeth um, uh, in uh, the last battle. And as uh, Dr. Davis will tell you, Emmeth is, uh, well, it's a Hebrew word and it means uh, something like truth or firmness. Um, uh, having Hebrew scholars, you know, in the Q&A session can be nerve-wracking if you're referring to some Hebrew. Uh, but uh, that's probably, I, I'm not a C.S. Lewis expert by any means, um, but I imagine that's why uh, Lewis's interest in philology and so on, uh, that's probably why he chose the name for this character, Emmeth, uh, in, um, in the last battle. And Emmeth was... Um, Oh, somebody help me. Cal Calamine? 
which was a region of uh, Narnia, so he was one of the Calamines. And um, when uh, he was raised, as, as, as my memory of the last battle, uh, it, it's not faultless by any means, but, but if, if, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, um, Amoth served from his youth upwards, uh, served uh, Toth, who was the counterpart to Aslan. So, so in, in, in Lewis's uh, uh, tale, uh, this, this guy, Emeth, worshipped the devil because he had never met Aslan. He'd never heard of Aslan. And when Narnia was uh, destroyed, Emeth um, um, meets Aslan. And um, these are the words, I, I looked it up today, these are the words in, in the last battle that Aslan gives to Emeth. I take to me the services which thou hast done to Tash, the, the false god. If any man swear by him and keep his oath for the oath's sake, it is by me that he has truly sworn, though he know it not, and it is I who reward him. Those are the lines from the last battle. Here's a man... I mean, in, in C.S. Lewis's is, is, uh, uh, fanciful tale here, uh, here's a man who has served, served um, Tash all of his life, but in the end, all that he did for Tash is accepted because it was done with loyalty, because it was done in truth, because it was done in commitment. The good that he did in serving Tash is accepted by Aslan. Now, you, you can imagine that that's, um, that's, that's, that's difficult, to say the least. Now, here in the United States, uh, C.S. Lewis is uh, almost an idol. Well, forget the almost. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis is right up there with... Uh, with um, your mother and apple pie, and uh, he can do no wrong. Uh, I have to say that in, in Britain, among conservative Christians in Britain, uh, Lewis isn't regarded quite in the same way. Uh, Lewis believed in purgatory. Uh, he did, certainly did not believe in the inerrancy of uh, s Scripture. Um, his view of the atonement is, is at, at best... At best, um, not conservative, and at worst, it is it is uh, a ransom to the devil, basically. Um, so, so there are some so there there are some important issues in Lewis, which 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 remove him from from the central orthodox um, understanding of Bobby. Good to see you. I married this couple, how many years ago? Five years ago, now they're on baby three in five years. Uh, congratulations, good to see you, I'll catch you afterwards. Um, C.S. Lewis's last battle, Emmeth, um, Tash, 
Aslan uh, words at the end that seem to imply from C.S. Lewis that you, can, that you can live a life never having heard of Aslan or, or let's, let's forget the allegory, never having heard of Jesus, but those works that you did in, in faith, in honesty, in, in, in uprightness, will be regarded in the end as works done for Jesus. And that's been seen um, by some, and, and I would certainly be among them, as Lewis advocating an, an inclusivist view with regard to those who have never heard the gospel. Now let's think about this issue. This, this, is, a, this is a very important issue. It's a very... Um, it's a very emotional issue. It's a very sensitive issue. You know, we tend to think of those who have never heard the gospel as those uh, living in some island in the Pacific, wherever that, 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 that flight, that plane has gone missing. Somewhere far away, people, people that, that are on the fringes uh, of, of our knowledge but in truth and in reality, the, the person who's never really heard of Jesus and never really heard the gospel can be living next door to you. Right? So we're, we're not really talking about, about a tribe in the Amazon jungle that is that's far off, cut off from civilization. I mean, the person next door to you might never really have heard the gospel. And to be, to be honest, I, I think until I reached 18, until I read John Stott's book, I'm... I'm I'm not aware that anyone ever told me what the gospel was. So, so for the first 18 years of my life, I, I too was in this category of those who have never really heard the gospel. Now, what kind of answer do you give to this question about, uh, about those who have never heard uh, the gospel, never heard of Jesus? Well, there are all kinds of answers. The, one answer is, is church exclusivism. That's the view Cyprian, uh, among the church fathers, uh, advocated a view, uh, for, forgive the Latin, extra ecclesium nulla salus, outside the church there is no salvation. Now, the Westminster Confession modified Cyprian a little and, and added the word ordinarily outside of the church, there is no salvation. In, in other words, that the church was, was kind of central to the propagation of the gospel. But Cyprian put it in, in, in bold letters. I mean, outside of the church, there can be no salvation. Uh, let's take another opinion. Another opinion would be that of, uh, say, John Piper. Uh, the view of the CrossCon conference that met um, last December. Uh, I forget the numbers, 6,000 or so young students, uh, folk age between 18 and 22, 23 or so. Um, and, and the view of that conference, is the view of John Piper, would be that, that uh, those who have never heard the gospel in verbal form, 
Right? Those who have never heard the gospel in verbal form cannot be saved. That you must, be, you, you must hear the gospel in verbal form and respond to it, otherwise you cannot be saved. Uh, there is a view, um, we might call it the special uh, revelation exclusive, exclusivism. That God can, uh, can speak or, or appear to someone uh, in some far off island. Um, they may never heard the gospel from someone else. They, they've never encountered a Bible. They don't have access to the internet. But God can, can visit them and speak to them the gospel. Um, Timothy George, for example, at Beeson would hold to a view of, of that nature. That God can, can reveal himself mm, supernaturally uh, and, and make the gospel known uh, apart from another um, human being. Uh, there are, there's another response. There is what's called uh, the agnostic response. I don't know the answer to this question, and, and you shouldn't attempt to answer it. And I think that J.I. Packer is somewhere in that, in that category, uh, that this is a question that's beyond and outside uh, the, the written word of God, and Scripture is silent about the unevangelized. And therefore, we don't know whether it's possible or not for somebody who's never heard the gospel to be to be saved. Uh, there is uh, there is a general revelation inclusivism view that says uh, that so, that people can be saved just through general just by looking at um, uh, the Grand Canyon or looking at um, um, the the Danube or or, or seeing the Alps. Uh, just just by seeing God in creation uh, that they can be saved. Uh, there is another view, the world religions view, that uh, all religions are more or less equally, uh, equally the same, that there's good, there's truth, a little bit of truth in all of the religions. So you can be a good Hindu or a, or a Buddhist or a Shintoist, and, and you can hear the gospel in different words for sure, but, but there's a little bit of the gospel in all of the world religions. That's, that's another answer. Uh, there is, uh, there is uh, just the simple um, universalist view. Everybody's going to be saved anyway. So it doesn't, I mean, the question is kind of moot whether you hear the gospel or not, because everybody's going to be saved. So there are lots of answers to these questions. My answer would be John Piper's answer. My answer is the Romans 10 answer, uh, that, that the, the, the gospel needs to be, how shall they be saved without a preacher? Right? That, that, that they, they actually need to hear verbalized the gospel. You know, there are other texts of the Bible uh, that rule out some of those answers. Uh, texts like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Now, folk deal with that text by suggesting, well, you know, in Christianity you come to God as Father, but in another world religion you come to God and you call him something else. But, so that text, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. No one comes to God and call him Father, but in Christianity. But you can still come to God and call him something else in another world religion. That's how they deal with a text like that. Um, there is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Um, but, uh, but the Romans 10 
verse for me is 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 kind of conclusive. Uh, how shall they hear without a preacher? That passage, and uh, and, and therefore, unless unless there is a a verbalized gospel to respond to, I I. I I do not think that the Bible allows us to say that you can be saved just by looking at, at, at the Grand Canyon in general revelation. Uh, I, I do not think that the gospel is, is, is equally dispersed among all of the world uh, religions. Uh, and, and therefore, I'm, I'm gospel exclusivist. And let's be absolutely honest. I mean, if you weren't gospel exclusivist, why would you do missions? Why would you go abroad? Why would you go to China? Why would you spend the rest of your life trying to plant a church in Paris? Why would you go to Poland, Warsaw? I mean, what is there in Poland, Warsaw? Warsaw, Poland. Uh, unless it's the gospel, right, that's, that's driving you to go there. And the thought that unless they hear this gospel... There is no possibility of salvation. And so that's, that's, that's my answer to, to that question. Uh, another question uh, was, um, why was crucifixion necessary? Uh, and then in parenthesis, that particular form of execution. That's, that's an interesting question. Why was crucifixion necessary? The question isn't asking, was it necessary for Jesus to die? That's not the question. At least, I don't think that's the question. The question is not, is not, uh, is not questioning the need for Jesus to provide atonement through death and substitution and satisfaction and propitiation and redemption and, 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 and so on. That's not the question. The question is why, why crucifixion in particular? Could he, could he have been our savior by being, being and, and, and sorry, this is, this is insensitive now, um, but could he have died in some other way? By, by a beheading or, 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 or something, some other f- form of death, would that have been acceptable? And I suppose the question is a theoretical one at one level, and then it's something else at another level. I, I have no interest in answering the theoretical question, could, Jesus, could God have saved us by some other Means that's that's a that's a theoretical question that, that I have no interest in, in answering. But once you have the Old Testament, does the Old Testament itself provide for us? Um, does the Old Testament itself provide for us material that would lead you to expect? that the form of death provided by the mediator would be crucifixion? I think that's the question that that we're trying to answer. And and it seems to me that one text that was important to Jesus himself as, as, as Jesus faced his own death, what, what text came to mind? 
And, and one of those texts is Psalm 22. Psalm 69, other, other psalms are, are on his mind, but Psalm, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, that text, that, that psalm is, is on his mind. My, my understanding here is that Jesus learned the Old Testament. Um, I remember Sinclair Ferguson saying in a sermon a year or two, well, he's been gone a year, but, but two, say two years ago, I, I remember him vividly saying uh, that it was his opinion that Jesus had memorized the Old Testament. And I have no, I have no, and, and, and Dr. Ferguson, if you're listening, um, which I doubt that he is, but, but um, I have no means of proving that. I have no means of disproving that. I, I, certainly, I certainly believe with all of my heart that he knew great, great portions of the Old Testament. Now, don't default into saying he's God so he knows everything. We're not talking about his divine nature. We're talking about his human nature. And he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with men. So he learned the Old Testament scriptures the same way that you and I learn the Old Testament scriptures by, by memorization. Now, what kind of memorization facility do you have when you don't have sin? That I'm looking forward to, to actually experiencing. Uh, and, and, and so I think that a, a sinless mind has, has an ability to learn and retain that, that a sinful mind certainly does not. But it's not, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, answer, we, we shouldn't go there thinking that that learning was something easy for Jesus. I mean, it was something that involved effort, I think. I think he, I think he deliberately meditated on passages of Scripture, like Psalm, like Psalm 22, which contains the words, they pierced my hands and my feet. So, so what I'm saying is that, that in the Old Testament, there is a a prophecy, if you take the 22nd Psalm to be messianic at its core, and that Jesus read it in a messianic way, so he, he, takes, he takes on the tenor of Psalm 22, it contains within it a, a, a kind of prediction that it involves piercing of hands and feet, which, which is certainly a signal to crucifixion. You know, the, the Old Testament certainly says, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree, and, and that, that text is taken up by Paul in, in Galatians as, as indicative of the death of Jesus in crucifixion. So, so... I think that I think that the Old Testament, in prophecy, God in prophecy foresaw that the, the the means of execution in a Roman Empire would have been crucifixion. Now, now, is is there something about crucifixion more than any other kind of death that is more significant? And I and I, I I'm not sure I want to go there, but I do think I do think that crucifixion is is shadowed in, in the Old Testament in, in some of these 
passages. Uh, another question of a very different sort, and um, Rosemary, you need to be listening to this one. Uh, do cats go to heaven? <laughs> you know, we always get one question like this. Um, <coughs> And I imagine the question was asked uh, with tongue-in-cheek. You know, nobody, nobody doubts that dogs go to heaven, but, <laughs> but a lot of you seem to doubt uh, cats go to heaven. And, and I have a doubt about one particular cat, for sure. Um, actually, it's a, more, it's, it's a more interesting and perhaps more important question than you might think. You know, if you have your Bibles, and, and this declares now something about you, if you actually bring your Bible to a, a, a meeting of this sort. But if you don't, I'm going to read it to you. So you're okay. But um, turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 38. I, I, I was thinking about this passage because I was actually, I was actually lecturing on this passage on Monday uh, to, to my students in Atlanta. And, and it you know how you read the Bible and you think you read the Bible all the time and then, and then you see something that you've never actually seen before. It's, it's there. It's, it's, not, it's not new. I, I don't believe the Bible changes. It's you that's, that's missed it all along. You've read it so many times but you, it, you'd never quite seen it in this light. And it suddenly um, emerged to me on Monday, uh, 1 Corinthians 15:38. Paul is talking about the resurrection body. Uh, and uh, someone will ask, back in verse 35, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? And, and Paul kind of, in very Paul-like way, says, you know, you foolish person. Uh, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. And so, so first of all, he's saying, there's a link between this body and the resurrection body that is parallel to the link between a seed and a flower, a seed and, and a plant. Now, when you look at a seed, you don't, you don't see the plant, you just see a seed, and the seeds are kind of boring, and, and they're, they're, they're kind of brown and, and round, and, and, but they don't have limbs and, and leaves and flowers and so on. Now... I don't think Paul intends us to press this too far. He's just saying there's, that there are similarities. There's continuity and discontinuity between this body and the resurrection body. Now, I firmly believe that our resurrection bodies will have arms and legs and eyes and ears and nose and actually a digestive system. But, but I, I, I firmly believe that, that it's, it's, going to be, it's going to be a real body. But notice what Paul goes on to say. But God gives it, verse 38, God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body, for not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. Now, what he's, what he's saying in the broad sense is that there's continuity and discontinuity between between this world and the world to come, between life in, in this fallen world and life in the new heavens and new earth. But he doesn't stop to say, you know, and he talks about this world and he talks about uh, human beings and animals and birds and fish. But he doesn't say, 
Well, you understand that in the new heavens and new earth, there will only be humans. There won't be animals or birds or fish, right? That, that Paul doesn't say that. And I think the expectation is that, that what is true of, a, of life and existence in this world will, with perhaps some discontinuities, be true of life in the new heavens and in the new earth. So, so there, will be, there will be animals... And, and fish and birds in the new heavens and new earth. Now, if, you're, you, know, if you take Revelation literally, because that's the way you read Revelation, and you see, and you see that there will be no more sea, right, in Revelation. A ruse out fish and whales and octopuses and, and, and so on, right? But that, that's, a, that's not what John is saying. That's for another time, another place. But... but, but <coughs> It is interesting to me why this question is often asked and why this question is often, the answer to this question is often puzzled at when the answer to are there dogs in heaven, the answer is of course. I mean of course, why would there not be? You know and especially for Calvinists, now the and don't take offense now, but the Lutherans believed that the new heavens and new earth involved a complete obliteration of this universe, whereas the Calvinists talked about it being restored. Because creation itself isn't sinful. And, and God's work is restorative. And So what is he going to restore? He's going to restore Eden. I mean, if you read Revelation 21 and 22, what have you got? Well, you've got Eden. You've got fruit trees on either side of the river. What's in the river? Nothing. No. Fish. Bass and trout and salmon. and Why not? Actually, I'm not, I'm not so much interested in the answer to the question, are there cats in heaven? And the answer is, yes, I fully expect to see feline types in heaven. But, but that question doesn't interest me so much as, as what kind of heaven, and often when we think about heaven, we're thinking about the intermediate state rather than, rather than the end, the, the new heavens and new earth. What kind of, what kind of future existence do you do you anticipate? And, and, and I think my, my exhortation would be, your view of heaven is far too small. It, it's actually far too confining. God made us and he will remake us as he, as he has already done in Christ in anticipation of the new heavens and new earth to be godness, and explorers to go where no man has gone before. Star Trek. So do cats go to heaven? Now uh, here's another question. Yes.
What the Westminster Confession says is that elect infants and, and those who are incapable of understanding the gospel, and, and what they have in mind is not the unevangelized, but those who are mentally incapable of understanding the gospel. And what they, what they said was that elect infants and, and those incapable of understanding the gospel are saved. Now, in one sense, that statement isn't saying a great deal because it is of the nature of election that all elect will be saved. Right? So what they're, what they're not saying is that all infants and all those who are incapable of understanding the gospel will be saved. Now, they didn't say that because they couldn't prove that from Scripture. Even though I think it was the view of the vast majority of them, if not of all of them. It was certainly the view of the majority of the Westminster divines that all children dying in infancy are saved. That was their view. They couldn't prove that from Scripture. There's no, there was no Scripture verse that could prove that. So, so what they, rather than say nothing, they, they said something pastorally. And, and what they said was that all elect infants will be saved. And I think if you went and asked another question of them and, sa- and say, do you think that infants who die in infancy are elect, most of them would have said, yes, that is my view. That's, that's my view, my personal view. Um, I, I can't prove that from the Bible. I can, I, can, I can get close to it with the death of David and Bathsheba's illegitimate son and David's words. The expert is sitting over here on, on all things First Samuel. And John Piper would, would be of that nature. John, John Piper's statement about the unevangelized is, is, about, is not about infants and it's not about those incapable of understanding the gospel. It's about, it's about the unreached people groups. That, that would be his concern. Yeah. It's, it's very important. It's very important. Um, here's another question. Uh, if, if the elect are chosen to salvation before time began, does that mean that God also chose whom he would send to hell before time began? Does God destine both those whom he saves and those who go to hell? If so, is that what Paul describes in Romans 9? Now, Romans 9, the, uh, the allusion to Romans 9 uh, are, are the words, uh, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Uh, Romans 9 is Paul saying, uh, does not the potter have the right to make one vessel to honor and another to dishonor? In Romans 9, Paul is arguing about divine <coughs> sovereignty. So, uh, let, let, me, let me allude here to... Forgive me. Let me allude here to, um, to the issue of the, of the decree. And we're talking here, we're talking here about the, the, the logical order in which God thinks about salvation. So, so let, me, 
and, and let me just narrow it to two issues here. One, one is election, and let me say reprobation, and the other is sin. Now, we're talking about before time, before the creation of the world, and, and we're asking, so, so let me ask you this question. You're having, you're having a debate, as you do, with your friends, with your mother, on the telephone about election. And uh, your mother, who's been raised, you know, a, a godly, godly Arminian, and you've become a Calvinist, and, uh, and so every time you call your mother, you have this, this conversation about election. And your mother says on the phone to you, you know, this view of election isn't fair. I mean, election just isn't fair. Now, what's, what's your response? Remember, you're talking to your mother. What's your, what's your response? And, and many of you are going to respond by saying something like, well, if it's fairness, we're all going to be damned. Now, what you've done is you've, you've already considered fallenness, we're all fallen, before you consider election. So, so what, you've, what you've done is you've put sin and election in that order in the logic. You've, you've pre-considered sin, right, so you're fallen, so election and, and especially reprobation becomes a matter of grace. Right? It's grace for election, it's, it's um, justice. This is why I actually don't use blackboards or whiteboards, because my handwriting is terrible. But f- follow, the, follow the logic with me. If there is a pre-consideration of sin, election is choosing somebody who deserves who deserves help but gets heaven, that's grace. Reprobation is simply getting what you deserve. I mean, if God does nothing at all, what, what you get is justice. This, this, this order technically is called infralipsarian because, because the doctrine or the consideration of election is below infra the consideration of sin. Now, the, the question was, if the elect are chosen to salvation before time began, does that mean that God also chose whom he would send to hell before time began? Does God destine both those whom he saves and those who go to hell? If so, is that what Paul describes in Romans 9? Um, there, the, the, I mean, one answer to the question is, does God, does God choose... Is it a matter of the will of God who is elect and who is reprobate? And the answer to that is most certainly yes. Everything in one sense falls beneath the will of God. Nothing happens without God willing it to happen. Without him willing it to happen before it happens. Without 
God willing it to happen in the way that it happens. The answer to the question, is Romans 9 speaking about the, the logic of the order of the decrees? That's another question. And, and although I've answered this question here in an, in an infralapsarian way, there, there is another way of answering this question and simply saying God God is sovereign and he can do as he pleases. He can elect and reprobate as he pleases. And who are you to say otherwise? In in which case, reprobation is not a matter of justice. Reprobation is just a matter of sovereignty. And if you argue like that, then as as actually many in the 17th century did uh, argue like that, then then that puts you in a supra-lapsarian category. Whether you're infra or supra is, is beside the point. It's, it's, you know, I, I don't consider that to be an issue of orthodoxy. That's just, a, that's just an opinion. Because I, I think that the, the information of the Bible can be taken in more than one direction here. But what, what, what is absolutely crucial is that, that God's sovereignty is maintained. Whether that sovereignty is a matter of justice... Is, is, a, is a debatable um, issue. Here's, a, here's, another, um, here's another question. Um, what should we tell friends, believers and unbelievers, uh, who are running to see the movie Heaven is for Real? Uh, what scripture can be? Uh, what scripture can we use to refute the ideas given in this movie? It's an interesting question. Uh, I've never seen the movie, and I probably won't unless it's on the on a plane and it's free. Uh, so uh, I I can't speak for the movie. I, I've not. Um, uh, it, it's a four-year-old boy, Todd, somebody or other. Um, can't remember his second name um, hands up those who've read the book one who, uh, hands up those who've seen the movie is, I, I think the movie's out not a single one um, l- l- you know it's, it's, it's the more general question that interests me rather than the, than the specific one I know, I know nothing about this, this four year old boy or the genuineness of what he experienced, right, or, or, or the veracity with which he retells this story, or the veracity or otherwise of his parents or the church to which he belongs. I know, I know nothing about that, nor can I comment on it. But what I would say is that somewhere in the region of 4 to 15% of Americans have had near-death experiences that they recount in some form or another. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, I dream, I think I dream every single night, but every morning when I wake up, I don't remember them. I mean, they, I, I, I sometimes grasp, I, I want to, what, what was that? It's gone. Before I'm out of bed, it's gone. Now, Dr. Ferguson... He was always talking about his dreams. I mean, how many, how many of you can remember sermon after sermon where he was recounting his dreams? Vivid dreams. You know, there were dreams about him preaching in Geneva or playing golf at the Masters or something. 
you know, I, I never have those dreams. M most of my dreams I can't remember, and the ones that I do, I don't want to tell you about. <laughs> but but we, are, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That, first of all. Uh, this particular uh, book, now m movie, uh, Heaven is for Real, uh, there have been others like it. Uh, you know, I don't remember the titles now, but 90 Minutes in Heaven or 24 Minutes in Hell. or I mean, there have been both of those, I, I seem to recall, have, have, have been popular. Um, I, I would say, first of all, there is no persuading the gullible. I mean, the gullible are going to believe whatever they're going to believe, and no, no amount of rational, coherent, logical, sensible analysis is going to change their opinion. So, so anything that I, I would say or anything that you would say uh, here is, is probably unlikely to impress or change the mind of those who would go and see a movie. I think the movie is probably wonderful. I think it's probably a great experience. I'm not sure it's worth, you know, $10 to see. Um, but, but as a movie, I'm sure it's a great story. It's interesting. It's clean. Uh, it, I, I presume. I mean, I've never seen it, so I, I'm just presuming. And I'm, not, I'm not advocating that anybody should go and see it. But what does the Bible say? You know, and that's the question that we've always got to ask. I mean, what does the Bible say? And uh, so Jesus tells a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's a parable, for sure. And um, so the rich man begs that someone go and speak to his, uh, his family who are still alive. And, and, and what, is the, what is the response? If, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if they go and see heaven is for real. Right? That, that's, that's the point of the parable. If, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, I mean, it's not even the New Testament. I mean, it's the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament. If they don't believe the Old Testament, neither are they going to believe if someone rises from the dead. That's a very interesting answer, isn't it? What they need is to believe what's already given to them, before them, the Bible. You know, is heaven for real an evangelistic tool? No, it's not. You know, I haven't seen it, so I can't analyze it, but, but is it an evangelistic tool? Does it prove that there's an afterlife? No, it doesn't. A any more than, than Narnia exists or that there are hobbits. The fact is that near-death experiences in which you see extraordinary things and often beautiful things, rarely, by the way, hell and punishment, it's not exclusive to those who are nominally Christian. It's an experience that you'll find in, in humanity. I mean, it's an experience you'll find in all the world religions. So it's, 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 nothing, it's nothing exclusively Christian about it. Um, I did look up briefly uh, Karol Zales Zaleski sounds Polish Karol 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 Zaleski uh, The Life of the World to Come and uh, 
it's an analysis of these uh, near-death uh, experiences. And uh, one of the conclusions of this uh, book was uh, just how few of these near-death experiences ever spoke about hell or suffering. It was, it was almost exclusively a near-death experience that was very pleasurable, and, 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 uh, and so on. So, uh, what should we tell friends? Um, I mean, enjoy it for what it is. It's just a piece of uh, fantasy. Um, my time has gone, and I, I think the others are going to come and join us for the prayer meeting. I did have one more question, um, which I'll save for another time. But uh, let's, let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the written word of God. We are filled with questions. You made us to be inquisitive and inquiring. And there is a sense in which we can ask questions that is glorifying to you, and there's also a way that we can ask questions that is not glorifying to you. And so we pray when we do ask questions that we might ask them in a way that is righteous, that we are reflecting the image of God, that we're reflecting the explorative nature that you've made us to be. And we pray that we might always be in subjection to the written word of God, to Moses and the prophets. Whatever is not, is not subject to the written word of God, we, we, we want to exclude, however difficult the question may be. And in those areas where the Bible seems to be silent, or where the Bible seems to pose perhaps um, more than one opinion that we cannot, cannot reasonably and logically um, solve. Uh, we pray for meekness and for humility to be, to be in agreement over those things that are clear and to be humble in those things where the Bible is less than clear and give us grace to know the difference. And bless us, we pray, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.